and we're back with another episode of Gladiator for Europe. I'm Abram, and I'm joined by Ian. How we doing? And uh, I watched this documentary recently. Uh, it's called Barely Dead. It's this documentary from about 2007 about rollerblading. And it's mostly a history of rollerblading and how rollerblading was cut from the X Games in 2005. You know, a year or two before the interviews for this documentary were shot. And got me thinking about, you know, the X Games, extreme sports, and just like skating in general. Because, you know, as somebody who was live in the 90s, early 2000s, and just somebody who watches movies from that era, it's striking how commonplace skating was in pop culture in that period and how it's just completely gone now yeah and i think that for a lot of people any memory of the cultural moment of the 80s 90s early 2000s is basically inextricable from skating yeah it feels like the main activity like the main hobby you did as a teenager like if you just had something you did in your downtime it probably was you know, skating, maybe biking around, like uh, roller skating. Like, obviously, like, you know, video games uses that time. I'm sure people read books or watch TV or whatever. But, you know, skating really was the thing that was represented in media the most. Absolutely. Like, think of uh, The Simpsons intro. Yeah, exactly. Or think of, like, you know, like a movie like Clueless or um, a more recent period piece, uh, mid-90s. Yeah. It wasn't just skating, just, like, extreme sports even just the word extreme was like a, a central piece of gen x cool extreme was just a word they threw on basically everything extreme nacho cheese from taco <laughs> bell and of course it's always extreme with just x t-r-e-m-e yeah extreme gotta emphasize how cool this is but yeah um for whatever reason i mean that was just like a fad it just sort of died out um let me just talk about this documentary a little bit because uh something i didn't realize until watching this, is that I always assumed rollerblading was called rollerblading, but it turns out it's called skating. And the fact that it's called skating by, you know, people who do it really caused a rift in the skating community because obviously there are people who skateboard who also call it skating. So now you have like two different activities, both called skating and both like using the same equipment, going to same skate parks, you know, Riding on the same rails, going up and down the same half pipes. You know, whenever there's like a skating exhibition, you would have skateboarders and rollerbladers. When the X Games became a thing in like the mid-90s, skateboarding and rollerblading were both represented. It really caused a weird rift in the community that I didn't realize even existed. Did you realize that rollerblading was called skating? No, I had no idea. And I can see why there, uh, there might have been some frustration at that confusion. Just, yeah, us knowing this stuff more for popular culture than as being skaters ourselves. Like, yeah, oh, skating, that means skateboarding, right? But there's roller skates, and actually roller skates are much older than skateboards. So it kind of makes sense that roller skaters would call themselves skaters. They were calling themselves skaters before skateboarders were even invented. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever skate? A little bit as a kid. I never was very good at it. I, I could never stay on for more than like a few seconds without, without slipping. And I definitely never, can never do any tricks. I never owned a skateboard. I got a Razor scooter when I was about 11. And uh, if you don't know what Razor scooter is, it's the aluminum collapsible scooter. I got one of those when I was a kid. And originally it was just sort of to ride around with friends, get to a friend's house faster, get to like school and home faster. But, you know, I had that. And then when I was like a teenager, 
I got more into just the idea of skating and just like kind of like fucking my body up. <laughs> um, and then I, I'd use that to just like try to do tricks in, um, in the back in front of the house, uh, jumping up the curb, you know, trying to do, you know, dumb jumps and stuff. And I feel like skaters in general, skaters and BMXers, you know, went through the same arc where they basically got this thing, not necessarily to do six stunts, just to get around faster, right? Because skating is a very suburban activity. Having a little thing to get to your friend's house faster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that I might jump on that and say that the uh, the archetypal like skating zone is either the suburban neighborhood park or the empty backyard pool. Both of which I feel like don't really exist outside of post-war suburbs. The idea of like a specific skate park or you know just having a pool in your backyard. Yeah, for me, for street skating, it's more like somewhere like maybe in town that isn't really heavily trafficked basically somewhere with like a concrete staircase with like a a metal railing that you can you know jump off or like grind on i'm thinking when i went to high school there was just yeah a concrete staircase in the back that was about 20 steps and that became like a huge place to uh like skate tricks over the weekend you know skate over to the high school we don't know where that is it's usually not very far from where we live because it's a district school and uh perfect place to um just kind of hang out and do some like stupid stunts. So I guess in the 90s, skating becomes the culture, basically became the way all teenagers acted in the 90s, early 2000s, I want to say. But before then, it was more of a subculture, like off on the sidelines. And for a subculture to be like a real thing, it needs a look, a sound, a shared activity, and a general attitude or vibe. Doesn't necessarily need all four, but you know, generally subcultures have all four. So just think of like a broadly generic subculture like goths or hipsters, you know, just like in your head, picture it like, you know, you can kind of tell what music they're into, like what things they do together and just like obviously like how they dress. And I feel like for like uh, 2021, you've got K-pop fans who, even though they're mostly online, there definitely is a shared lingo, obviously shared music. I bet a lot of them probably wear korean inspired fashions and then on the other hand i think that like twitch stream gamers are kind of a subculture because they probably wear sort of similar clothes they definitely have you know a lot of like slang they use that often bleeds into the mainstream and of course all they do is their shared activity yeah um with k-pop stands or just like music stands in general um yeah the shared activity would be like streaming an album when it's like releases that's um always a big thing i hear them talk about and obviously like there's music concerts, right? So yeah, those like four things are what we're going to try break down for skaters. And, you know, there's like a lot of extreme sports and all, all of those are kind of interesting. Not all of them sort of fit in the subculture, but the ones that do are probably skateboarding, roller skating, and BMX biking, because those three are the most accessible. Yeah. The scope of the term extreme sports and you know which sports are represented at the x games like spans far beyond those three you know there's like windsurfing skydiving bungee jumping downhill skiing motocross whitewater kayaking ice climbing uh so you know there's a wide range of stuff but most of those require expensive equipment and specific weather or specific terrain to like do those things on whereas skating and biking were things any like urban suburban teenager anywhere in america would like 
50, 100 bucks, that's something you can do. So yeah, it's cheap and you can do it anywhere, which is why those are the ones that took off the most and why those are the ones that were much more popular with teenagers. Like surfing, surfing is much more adult activity in my mind. Obviously like surfboards are expensive, but also just like the act of like, hey, let's get down to the beach, just catch some waves. Well, how are you getting down to the beach? You got to drive there. Are you asking your mom to drive you there? Probably not. You have to have your own car to be able to do it. You know, that's a really good point. And that's probably why it's it's only really uh, like a childhood activity for people who like straight up live at the beach. If you're, you know, like if you're a kid in Hawaii, maybe, or if you live in like a super expensive LA beach town. Yeah, it's like you really have to be on the beach to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like dirt biking is super accessible. It's kind of like soccer. The reason soccer is so big globally is because you just need a ball and like a few friends and just a decently sized open space. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you don't even need to be the one who owns the ball. You just need to know somebody who owns the ball. Super accessible in that way as well. But let's just start with surfing. You know, we're going to try break all these down, but let's start with surfing. It probably is a, it's one of the oldest, you know, sport activities and one of the most interesting histories, I would say. Yeah. So just define terms. Surfing means riding waves and riding waves on like a plank that you, you know, either sit on or like lie down to like pedal with your arms or stand on. It's not something you sit in because that would be a boat. So the history of surfing in the sense that, you know, something you stand or sit on is in the popular imagination, I would say it comes from Hawaii. I mean, certainly the modern surfing comes directly from Hawaii, but they weren't the first to ever do it, right? Yeah, it's kind of cool. It turns out that the first attested surfboards are actually in Peru and that for about 1800 years, people in northern Peru have basically been surfing on these very flat, skinny reed boats that you don't sit in. Instead, you stand on them like a surfboard. They call them uh, Caballitos de Totora because they're mostly based around this community called Totora, and they go all the way back really deep into the pre-Columbian period. Yeah, I read about this a little. There's like cave paintings and like just old figures of like depicting people doing this. Yeah. So yeah, it was um, definitely something that's happened for thousands of years. Yeah. But... The difference between like what the Peruvians were doing and what the Hawaiians were doing is that for most of those people, it, it wasn't like a real like important aspect of their culture. You know, it was just like, you know, you got to ride the wave so you can throw your fishing net out so you can like go fishing. Whereas in Hawaii, it was much more spiritual and like culturally significant. Surfers would pray like to the gods when making their boards uh, when you cut down a tree you know you pay tribute in the form of fish to the gods just like the gods would bless this tree that you were making your board from priests would be there to perform ceremonies when you're making your board when you're going down in the water they would pray for good waves if you were a particularly skilled surfer you would be considered blessed you know you would be considered blessed by the gods and if you're blessed by the gods then you're a very um, respected member of your community, you know. And you know, in, in addition to this added spiritual dimension, the materials they built these boards out of is totally different from in Peru because the traditional Peruvian boards are somewhat unusually made out of reeds bound together the same way that boats would be made in Peru. But in Polynesia, including Hawaii, they're always made of wood, which means they can be a lot more durable. And I think that also means that there's a little bit more precision that can be made in carving and shaping the board so you've got more control over what your board is going to be yeah it was usually 
you cut down a tree and you just like shave it down to be just a smooth plank. It isn't like multiple pieces of ha wood hammered together tightly, like it's just one slab from one tree. So yeah, it was like a, a big spiritual like experience in Hawaii. Then the white man came and that was thrown off to the side. In terms of design, they were really long. They were like between 10 and 20 feet long and about shoulder width. You know, think of like a palm tree, like it's shaped like a palm tree. It's very long and, you know, not very wide. And um, because everyone made their own boards, the size is very dependent on the size of the tree and also the size of the surfer. You know, the taller you are, the longer board you wanted. And obviously because this was a fairly spiritual thing, if you were able to master a much longer board or if you were able to cut down a much taller tree, you were also a little more respected in that sense. You know, it's probably just a coincidence that both Peru and Polynesia have this shared history of surfing, but there is a very long history of people speculating if there might actually be something more meaningful to that connection. So uh, there is a fair amount of evidence now that there was pre-Columbian contact between Polynesia, specifically Easter Island, and the peoples of Peru and Colombia. Genetically, there is a uh, the peoples of Easter Island have South American ancestry, which is kind of cool. And then some Polynesian crops, uh, most notably the sweet potato, are eaten in South America. So presumably there was a little bit of contact across the Pacific in basically ancient times. And so this is pretty well understood now, but it's been speculated for a while. And in the 40s, there was this really famous Norwegian explorer, Thor Heyerdahl, who was one of the first advocates of these theories of ancient contact, which at the time were basically seen as crackery. So in 47, he had this crackpot scheme to build a reed boat, not too different from the caballitos from Peru, and sail it to Polynesia. So he constructed this, this craft and went all the way over and managed to land, I believe, on Easter Island, which basically at the time proved that it could be done. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if um, wave surfing was something that was shared between the two cultures. It also not surprise me if it wasn't, because it seems like the sort of thing you would develop naturally just as being Polynesian and having to like, go between islands or just like go out fishing for sustenance. But I mean, I have to stress that surfing in Peru and surfing in Polynesia is very different in terms of just uh, spiritual significance and just the fact that the boards look completely different. But yeah, um, so the boards in Hawaii, yeah, they just look like a long plank of wood. You know, very different than the short, more curved style that we see today. And the change in style started with a, a man named George Freeth. You know, he was half Hawaiian. He was born in Hawaii, raised in Honolulu. But because he was only half Hawaiian and looked like a white guy, uh, he's considered the first white man to master surfing. And sometime in the early 1900s, he decided to cut his surfboard in half. It was like 16 feet, and he just cut it down to 8 feet. And, you know, I guess at this point, colonization had diminished the more spiritual aspects of surfing. The point that surfers in 1900s Hawaii, like, didn't feel the strong connection with the length of their board, because other native Hawaiians who were also surfers followed suit and just cut their boards in half and made them much shorter. So yeah, um, you know, very quickly, instead of surfing boards two to three times their height, they all start surfing boards around eight feet long. And yeah, around this time, 
surfing also started making its way to the mainland, to California. The guy, George Freeth, started surfing um, in California at Huntington Beach. He was originally brought over as uh, like a tourist attraction because, uh, you know, the Huntington Beach train station was opening. You know, let's put on a big show. Here's this guy surfing on the beach. Look how impressive that is. So that sort of started catching on California. A couple of years later, starts catching on in the East Coast, in North Carolina. And, you know, the next five, ten years, it became like a nationally recognized sports by the various sporting agencies. Yeah. And, and I should that also... Um Americans, uh, white Americans had been aware of surfing for a while. Like one thing I found interesting is that even before surfing was widespread on the mainland US, there are a lot of references in Mark Twain and Melville to this like Polynesian practice that people knew of. So I think they were kind of, Americans at large were kind of primed to get into surfing by the start of the 20th century. I think it really just needed to happen is a white person needed to master surfing and then bring it back to the mainland. I mean, I guess like a native Hawaiian born person could have done it too but I, the the first person to like really demonstrate it on the mainland did turn out to be like a white passing half hawaiian man yeah which is kind of typical for american history i feel like it's like yeah the elvis effect you know yeah i mean whatever um it was first suggested to like be an olympic sport in 1920 but that didn't happen uh, unfortunately it didn't happen until the 2020 olympics in tokyo and even then you know it would have been kind of perfect, you know, a hundred years since the initial suggestion that it shows up. But thanks to COVID, the 2020 Olympics were delayed to 2021. So it was actually 101 <laughs> years. So that's a shame. Ah, oh, so close. But yeah, like in that time, you know, the shape of the boards like was still like being heavily innovated on. George Freeth cut it in half in like the early 1900s. In the mid 1920s, we got the first hollow board because, you know, even if it was just like half the size, lugging around like a solid slab of wood is not ideal. Figured out how to make it hollow in the inside so it was much lighter. Then in the 30s, they got like the fin on the back, on the underside, so it could much more easily maneuver side to side. Then in the 40s, they became much more curved in the front, like sort of like a boat is. So the front of the surfboard like sits above the water in relation to the body and then so that was in the 40s in the 80s we get the double and triple fins so what happens is an australian surfer just completely dominated the competitive scene in the early 80s with a surfboard with two fins and at the same time another australian surfer was also dominating with a surfboard with three fins and this is really funny to me because um, it took hundreds of years to make the board shorter and it took decades to like add a fin and then took like like five more decades to add a second fin and then it took like five <laughs> minutes to add the third fin <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. that's wave surfing but you know that's not the only kind of surfing let's talk about sidewalk surfing Yeah, like as fun as surfing is, it's not the most practical sport in the world. You can only do it on the coast, and even then, like, 
not all the coast. A lot of the East Coast is just not primed for surfing. Like even if the water is warm, it just doesn't have good beaches. And even in the West Coast, um, half the months of the year, unless you have a bodysuit, it's probably going to be too too cold to surf. Yeah. And like even if you live in the perfect spot, like right on the beach in California, like you still need the waves to come in, right? It isn't something you can do every day. Yeah, absolutely. That's why in the 40s, when surfing was like mostly established, you know, we had the hollow boards and the short sides and the fin, um, and it was becoming much more popular. It's like a legitimate sport. You know, it was a thing that um, was talked about in the newspapers and magazines. A number of people, like just throughout the country, tried to replicate it on dry land. Yeah. And that became skateboarding. Kind of strangely, the first skateboards were tiny. You know, like you would think, given it was like meant to mimic surfing, that the first skateboards would probably be the size of surfboards. Or like modern longboards even. Yeah. But they were literally two by fours. So um, what happened was in the 50s and 40s, there were things called crate scooters, which was literally like a wooden crate with a two by four, like hammered in. And then uh, these like metal wheels hammered on. What they did was they just ripped the crate, which was the handle off and just uh, used the base as a, a skateboard. Have you ever seen Back to the Future? You might remember Marty McFly back when he was in the 50s. He, he does literally just that. Ergonomically, it's not ideal. It's like, it's a two by four. It is very thick, very sturdy, and it's also really narrow. So your feet are hanging off from uh, both ends. So, but yeah, like as time possesses, you kind of figure out like, okay, we need to make this thinner. We need to make this lighter. We need to make this more flexible, yada, yada. So one thing I should say is uh, skateboarding has periods of boom and busts. You know, the boom is usually tied to when a, a new kind of board comes out. And the bust is when you reach a plateau of what's possible with that board. So the first boom was late 50s to mid 60s. In 59, a company called Roller Derby put out the first skateboard that was called a skateboard. Up until 59, it was called sidewalk surfing. But yeah, in uh, the 60s, we started calling it skateboarding. And yeah, it was still like thick and stiff and the wheels were metal. But the shape of the deck is, you know, very similar to what we see today. Um, then 63, you get clay wheels, which were like a much needed improvement over metal, but like still not really good wheels. Most importantly, this is when uh, the Fiberflex deck was first made. So a deck made out of like a thin piece of wood covered in epoxy and fiberglass. So it's like sturdy, but also flexes. And because it wasn't like a thick piece of wood, you could also shape it so you could get the kicktail that we all know and love, which is, you know, how the ends of the deck are curved upwards slightly so you can have leverage when uh, trying to maneuver. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that deck design came out in 1969, which was the bus period, you know, like mid-60s, like kids and teenagers figured out the all they could do with, uh, you know, the thick slabs of wood with the metal... Um, for the metal wheels and you know like a lot of kids got hurt on those because they're not very maneuverable and they are kind of dangerous so uh a lot of kids were not getting skateboards for birthdays or christmas uh between like 65 to the 70s so that was the first boom and first bust um but then they got good wheels so in the 70s we had become masters of polymers so wheels moved on from metal clay to polyurethane in 72 and in 73 you know the trucks Got a little more improvement, you know, giving the wheels, you know, more height, better maneuverability, so you can like lean to the side and side easier. And that kicks off another boom. And then, yeah, the boards in the 70s aren't exactly 
like what we see today, but they're basically 95% of the way there. So the perceptions of uh, skateboards are interesting because early on, it started as a more adult thing when it was like just a land-based alternative surfing, which was, you know, like a late teens, early 20s activity. But very quickly, it just became like a kid's thing. Yeah, it was definitely seen as just like we mentioned before, this like icon of childhood in the 80s and 90s and probably starting much earlier. Yeah, I think it was just because the skateboards were like kid size. Like if you were somebody who was like six feet tall, you could or like had a size 10 shoe or more. Uh, the skateboard was not right for you just in terms of size. And I don't know why they didn't just make bigger boards. I guess maybe they just didn't think adults would ever use them. I guess in the bus period of like the late 60s, early 70s, it sort of became like a black urban thing. My best guess is just that skateboards were much cheaper than bikes and kids in the suburbs were preferring bikes. Whereas, you know, poor black kids in the urban centers, you know, had to stick with skateboards. Um, but then in the mid-1970s, it changes to a middle-class teenager thing because in 1975 and 1976, there was a drought in California, which made all these backyard pools dry and empty. And this is where a lot of teenagers started to skate. So, you know, what's funny is originally the idea for skateboarding was to emulate surfing, but it actually took several decades for the technology to catch up to that ambition. So it isn't until the 1970s where, like, the boards are finally there. You can like maneuver much more fluidly. And also you have these curved banks of these um, dried out California pools that sort of imitate like the curve of a wave. Yeah. And I might add one thing that's specific to California is the idea of the pool with a rounded bottom, the kidney bean shape, which is really common these days. But it started um, in California and then and then, uh, yeah, and like you said, in 75, during the drought, all these pools were abandoned or emptied, and suddenly there were all of these perfect skating venues all across LA. Yeah, um, what happened was, uh, yeah, there was like this famous Finnish architect named Alvar Alto. He designed this like famous house just like for this rich couple. And uh, one of the things he did was, it was the kidney-shaped pool, which is like, it looks like a sink basin, right? Like it had just curves inwards. It isn't like doesn't have hard edges like you know a sand pool. But um, there was also like another rich couple in uh, Cal in the Bay Area in California, and they you know had a, a marvelous house made by an architect named Thomas Church, and he also just like copied that pool design, and then that house was like in you know all the architecture magazines and whatever. Soon enough, like. In the following decades, that pool design is now everywhere in these um, post-war boom suburban houses. Also, like in the 70s, like outside California and Arizona, skaters found these giant concrete pipes. You know, they was like supposed to be buried for like, I don't know, water treatment or like water distribution. Uh, you know, just like giant sewage pipes. But until then, they're just these giant concrete pipes like sitting in the middle of the desert. And they made the perfect pipe to like skate up and down. And that design made its way into skate parks. So that's why skate parks look the way they do now. You know, they have those basins. They're copied of the California pools. And they have these pipes and half pipes, which are copied of the just concrete pipes that were sitting in the desert. That is basically where all these aesthetics of a skate park come from. Yeah. So 
yeah, those skate parks opened up in the mid seventies, early eighties, and uh, turns out a lot of them went bust very quickly because um, insurance for skate park turns out to be very expensive because uh, a lot of kids are getting their uh, heads smashed open. Yeah, no, it's it is like a lot more dangerous than you think. You know, that's why there's. I remember in like the early mid two thousands, there was so much kind of like casual PSA propaganda stuff about wearing a hel- wearing a helmet. I'm kind of joking about kids getting their skulls cracked open, but, you know, there were a lot of just, like, injuries, you know, just landing in your hands, elbows, knees, just, you know, a lot of bleeding. Apparently from, yeah, so apparently from 2010 to 2015, about 150 people died skating, which isn't a ton, but that's still a lot, and probably a lot of those are kids. Yeah, you know, as a kid, your body can uh, withstand much more damage, but because of that, so in the mid-80s, most of those skate parks went bust. And just, I don't know, got like ripped apart, turned to a Starbucks parking lot or something. They still kind of stuck around in Europe, like Australia, New Zealand, because in those countries, the skate parks were like public. It was like a public park, whereas in America, they were mostly private businesses. So that's why they had to like deal with insurance and, you know, try and make money. Oh yeah, fun fact, the oldest remaining skate park is in New Zealand. It was opened in 74. It's the only one from that period that is still around all the like other ones from that period yeah ended up getting demolished but yeah so that causes an, another bust but before we get into the next boom let's get into rollerblading yes which is yeah that definitely uh sort of an extension of the whole skateboarding vibe you know get into roller skating or, and rollerblading let's get into ice skates yes another very ancient form of sport i know that uh, the first ice skates haven't found in finland are about three thousand years old which is pretty cool and for many many centuries peoples all across the you know circumpolar regions have been skating on on skates made of bone or antler usually with some animal fat as grease and that's just the way you get around in the winter when all the rivers and lakes are frozen, if you're, you know, hunting polar bears, you you need a way to get around. And the first roller skates were basically just invented to mimic ice skates. You know, basically the same reason uh, skateboards are invented, just mimic this thing and to try to do it on dry land. What's funny is the first roller skates were inline, you know, like roller blades, you know, with a wheel, like just two wheels on one in front of the other. You know, like, the first showed up in, like, 1740, but technology at the time wasn't good enough to, like, make something very maneuverable. And they did become kind of weirdly popular, you know, as shitty as they were, just um, as a tool for, like, figure skaters to just, like, practice when they can't be on the ice. And just, like, a hobby activity, I guess. But it got to the point that it was successful enough as an activity that skate rinks started opening, like, in um in Europe, I think... First ones opened up in Belgium in like 1850 or something. Um, so it was low key becoming a trendy activity, but it wasn't until 1860 that it gets to be what we think of today. Because in 1860s, when the first like design we think of now is invented, you know, with the four wheels, you know, two axles, four wheels uh, side to side, and the axles that can rock side to side, and you know, since Rocking axles make it easier to turn and stop, and the configuration of the wheels make it so you can just stand up straight, which you can't do um, in an ice skate or a, a rollerblade. 
you know you can't just like stand motionless um so that becomes like a huge hit and yeah they caught on in europe and america to the point where by the 1870s just like a decade later there were roller rinks popping up like in every major city yeah i knew that by the early 20th century they were pretty common but i didn't realize they went that far back um it does seem like it was just a really common diversion though especially for young adults and the way I found this out was because I was doing some research last year on the first policewoman in the United States, Officer Alice Wells of the LAPD. And at the time, you know, because she uh, there, there was so much suspicion over the idea of a female police officer, the main assignment she had in her first couple of years in the force was just going to roller rinks and like, you know, policing the good behavior there. Yeah, looking out for any uh, ankle peepers. Um, yeah, roller rinks were pretty big. You know, just researching this, I just, you know, went on Google and typed in like 1900s uh, roller skates. And there were plenty of photos of adult men and women in the fashion of the time, you know, the big flowy dresses or in the, the thin suits with the hats and, you know, the handlebar mustaches just like going nuts on uh, roller skates, like either in the rink or just like out on outside uh, on the pavement. And uh, yeah. So when I think of like adults in this period, like I don't really have any point of reference. I just kind of default to like what adults looked like in the post-war period, you know, 50s advertising or like, you know, 60s TV shows and just think, okay, there's like a nuclear family. There's like two kids and the mom stays at home and the dad is like very stern. You know, he goes to work and then comes home and just like reads the newspaper, maybe has a barbecue on the weekend. But it turns out that before then, basically the entire century before then, adults were much more outgoing in their activities and yeah there were like there were roller rinks and they were mostly attended by adults you know and there were like like roller leagues you know roller derby leagues or like roller polo leagues um just you know there are lots of sports that are played by adults it's very interesting roller skating continued to be a thing after the post-war period like into the 1970s 1970s when Backyard pools and skate parking started being a thing, and lots of roller skaters, you know, jumped on board, and but they weren't really able to like perform the same stunts uh, that skateboarders were performing, and that didn't really change until the late '80s, early '90s, when a company called Roller Blade put out the inline skates, the four in a line. And yeah, those were much more maneuverable. You could just much more easily like do the skateboard style stunts, you know, go for ramp to 180. But yeah, this is also when you finally get to the point where you have multiple people on the skate park in different equipment calling themselves skaters. It's where uh, the rivalry really comes in. And like you said, like you've got these two pretty different groups with pretty different, you know, histories and in outlooks, both calling themselves skaters. And even though there might be a pretty similar vibe, I think it is kind of also funny to look at the contrast, how you've got... Uh, surfing and skateboarding which always was pretty countercultural, and then you have rollerblading which has a much more kind of sweet and acceptable history which is now trying to move toward the more extreme vibe of skateboarding yeah i mean we think of it now as you know skateboarding is mainstream and roller skating isn't but it was basically the opposite for the first 50 years of uh, skateboarding history, right? Roller skating was this just, yeah, like low-key national pastime. This was just a, a thing kids and adults did for fun. And skating was this thing that very few people did, partially because, you know, the skateboards were very hard to maneuver, like, until the 70s, basically. So if you were a skater, like, in the 60s or 50s, um, it was m much more just 
a way to get around than like a fun activity, honestly. Why don't we put pants on the kids? Helmets and gear and mouthpieces. Let's just move on to our very last topic, which is uh, BMX, bicycle motocross. Uh, I think we got to start with the invention of the bike in the early 19th century. And I think it's kind of funny because unlike surfing or skating, there really isn't a traditional history of cycling. It was just invented as a sport activity in the beginning of the, of the 19th century. You, Some of you guys might know this, that it was first called a dandy horse because it was like seen as this toy for children that could sort of simulate being on a horse, but very quickly with the addition of pedals, it was realized that this could also be a method of transportation rather than just a game. You say if pedals came later, is like it kind of looks like what a bicycle looks today. You know, it has two wheels, equal size, and then like a metal wooden frame, just like connect them in the middle. But yeah, there isn't a pedal. You just like sit on it and you kick the ground. It's kind of like a sit-on scooter almost. It doesn't really get a lot of speed just because it's like a Flintstones car, honestly. Yeah, like it wasn't until the 1860s that they got pedals, right? Yeah, yeah. There's some Scottish inventor who uh, a lot of Scottish people are very proud to claim was the first person to put pedals on it. And then by the middle of the 19th century, they had just, bicycles had become ubiquitous. A lot of them were initially called velocipedes, which is a great name. And they just really took Europe and the United States by storm, pretty quickly spreading to other parts of the world. One kind of funny influence of the bike is that this was the first time that women started wearing pants as an undergarment. So it would be easier and more proper, supposedly, to bike in, in a dress. And so in a weird way, there's a, you can sort of see the trajectory of the invention of the bike leading to modern day clothing where women are allowed to wear pants. Yeah. I mean, I assume women wore pants when they were horse riding before then. No, 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 not at all. Actually, uh, it, that was a, it was a big issue. Women were expected to ride with both their legs on one side, but you can, on a bike, you can't do that. Wow. Yeah. So isn't that wild? Yeah, you can't be on a bike side saddle. So there was this need and basically women, because otherwise it would simply be improper for, because this was the era when, you know, when the first woman cop was going around policing morality at the, at the roller rink. So it would be very improper for a, a woman to ride a bike unless she was wearing some special garment. And so this is where we get bloomers. And from bloomers, we have women's pants. I can't believe that. I figured they they were pants for women to ride horses. No. Oh, I'm sure like, you know, like among the Scythians and the Mongols, there are women wearing trousers. But in, in Europe, and, in, and I'm almost pretty sure in most of East Asia and uh, the Middle East, you, it was simply improper for a woman to ride a horse the way a man would. Wow, we've come so far as a society. I mean, just like back on bikes, uh, the first pedal bikes were amusing because they didn't have like um the chain we think of now the pedal was like literally on the wheel so like one revolution of the wheel wasn't like a very long distance so you had to like really fucking pedal to like go fast so after that they figured why don't we just make the wheel huge and that's where you get like the penny farthing you know where yes. they have like the giant wheel in the front and then the <laughs> tiny wheel in the back yes yeah yeah it's called a penny farthing because you know like a penny and a farthing a penny is one cent farthing is quarter cent you get it yeah 
yeah, like that was a thing for about a decade, a decade and a half. Then by, you know, like from the 1870s, then by the 1880s, like somebody figures out how to like make the chain ring with the like chain to just like make it pedal much easier. Um, and then like the penny farthing disappeared. So it is kind of like an iconic invention of the 1800s, but people gave up on that shit very quickly and only lasted for about like 10, 15 years. Now motorcycles. So there was like some steam power bullshit in the 1800s. I'm not going to go into that. Like it's useless. Don't care. Um, but yeah, like 1860s and 70s is like when the internal combustion engine is invented. And that's when like, okay, motorcycles actually start becoming uh, useful. But it isn't really until like the late 1800s, like very early 1900s, that modern idea of what a motorcycle is, is produced, you know. Uh, the companies like Triumph in the UK, Harley Davidson in America, just like start producing them like at the very beginning of the 1900s. So yeah, really, it's the early 20th century when motorcycles first really take off. There was a lot of motorcycle usage in both of the world wars, um, supplanting an earlier failed attempt to use bikes in war, which is kind of funny to think about. Bicycles. Yeah, I think um, Triumph, they got like a shitload of in investment and like innovation basically just because of World War One. Yeah, uh, but really motorcycling as a specific subculture isn't until the end of World War Two, where you have all of these disaffected young male veterans who probably didn't have too much going on in their lives before the war, returning to the U.S. with this kind of sense of aimlessness and ennui, looking for something to recreate the, the fraternity and honestly probably the thrills of their wartime experience, turning to biking. And you start seeing these motorcycle clubs across the country being formed. There is this uh, pretty infamous riot in 1947 in the town of Hollister, California, where a couple thousand of these guys, you know, these World War II veteran young male cyclists or bikers, all probably in their 20s or 30s, just wrecked this small town. The movie The Wild One, if anyone's seen that, is about this incident. And pretty early on, there was th this well-known incident led to this sort of a very poor reputation of motorcyclists, which persist to the present and famously the american motorcycle association they insisted that actually you know 99 percent of motorcycle owners are perfectly law-abiding only one percent of bikers cause these problems and because of that since 1947 any self-avowed or posing outlaw bikers call themselves one percenters yeah i mean america has like a weird history with uh violence and subcultures i mean there's like violence in the skater subculture but we'll get into that in a little bit before then, let's just uh, finish talking about BMX. So BMX, bike motocross, comes from motocross. You know, motocross was a thing in the UK. Um, it wasn't really a thing in America until like the 1960s. Um, you know, the American Motorcycle Association, they mentioned, only sanctioned like 15 races a year, you know, off-road motorcycle races. And it didn't really allow races to be a big thing until the 1970s when, you know, all of a sudden there were like hundreds of them. And I think it might have to do with the bad reputation that uh, you mentioned. You, you know, these um, these motorcycle races will bring attention to bikers and uh, some of these bikers are uh, up to no good and we want to kind of like keep a clean image as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And the 60s also is uh, also when you started seeing even more of the outlaw biker culture really reaching a critical mass. But yeah, um, in the 1960s, we got the wheelie bicycle, which is, you know, a bicycle that sort of looks like a, the classic Harley chopper motorcycle, like 
full handlebars and, you know, like small tires. But yeah, so there was this documentary in 1971. It's called On Any Sunday. It's like a fairly well-received documentary. Uh, Steve McQueen produced it. I think it was the narration. Uh, you know, it was like nominated for an Academy Awards. Like, you know, pretty big deal as far as documentaries go. You know, it's a documentary about like motorcycles and like motorcycle sports. And in the intro, it has like a kid on a wheelie bicycle imitating like dirt bike stunts and that documentary is sort of credited as really just making bmx you know bicycle motocross a big thing and also making motocross a big thing in the united states because like i said there were very few officially sanctioned races in the 60s it isn't until the 70s until after this documentary comes in that goes from 15 to several hundred and yeah even before then like there were kids in like california doing bike motocross stunts like this but it was basically, you know, very locally limited, but this documentary gets out and uh, all of a sudden you have kids all over the country, even all over the world, basically uh, imitating this uh, style of a uh, bicycle trickery. So really, was that one documentary, you think, that really like sparked the idea of, uh, of, of BMX bikes and all that? You know, it only takes one kid to do this once and then for like the other kids to take notice and then do it too. But, you know... With the help of like this documentary, you don't need the local kid to like show you how it's done. You can just like see this documentary and be like, oh shit, we can do that. And then, yeah, all of a sudden kids all over the country are trying it out on their own. But yeah, um, the invention of the, the wheelie bike, that specific design, which mimicked like um, a motorcycle, kids, you know, basically the same way as like, as always, is just, you know, kids get these bikes, just like bike to a friend's houses and, you know, while they're biking around, they just kind of like fuck around with it, try jump a staircase, like try just go off road and get tricky with it. And that develops into its own sport. And Deftones? Of course. Yeah, it's an old metal band, Sacramento. They were started by this guy like named Stephen Carpenter, who uh, he taught himself guitar uh, when he was 15 because he was skateboarding and like a car ran him over and he was like stuck in a wheelchair for like a, a few months. Oh, so man. He couldn't skate anymore, so he just like just started learning how to guitar. Yeah. They were one of the early bands on the Warp Tour. There's like an MTV episode, MTV Sport episode about Warp Tour that we both watched. And like in that, in that little episode, he talks about how like the music he makes is for skating because it is just imitating the music that he listened to when he was skating as a teenager i just think on on this tour there's a lot of spirit you know everywhere there's spirit within the music you know like all the other bands they're just you know they're busting out the skateboarders are busting out these are a lot of the kids that are into our stuff you know basically they're at, you know they're doing what i was doing when i was their age and this is the kind of music i was into so it's kind of like you know it's one whole thing that all fits together it just motivates you to like push harder on that next trick i used to do bmx and i'd like have my headphones on and you just want to like and you got your favorite music on, and you're just like, yeah, and you don't care how many times you bail, you just got the music going, you just keep going, you know? That's what I think it's for. Because like you said, subcultures almost always have a specific sound as much as they have a specific look. And skateboarding probably has one of the, like, you know, richest soundtracks of any subculture. Yeah, it's like a punk ska, like, yeah, yeah. rock old metal sound. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Especially, I would say, not so much the punk of the 70s, but more so the, like, American punk, um, the American punk of the 80s 
and also uh, like in the beginnings of thrash metal. That guy's accident was like in 1998, so he was. Yeah, listening to like SoCal punk music scene of the 80s. So he's probably listening to stuff that was featured in Thrasher. So if, if you don't know, Thrasher was the skater magazine started in the early 80s. Uh, yeah, it was just like a magazine to like advertise skateboarding generally, but it was also like uh, a magazine to advertise like this scene of musicians. If we talk about how these things intertwine, like this is perfect one. It's like a skateboarding magazine and also punk magazine. Yeah. And I guess we should mention that even though, you know, skateboarding and punk don't have as much cultural cachet right now as they had in the 80s or 90s, the Thrasher brand is huge. You know, you, you probably see people wearing Thrasher clothing every day. And, and I feel like, uh, like, especially like two years ago, it was like completely ubiquitous. Every teen was wearing Thrasher clothes. You know, like Thrasher didn't create this marriage between like punk and skate, sort of like solidified it. And it also like, like makes perfect sense to me because punk rock and like street skating are very like early teens, backyards, like somebody's garage, suburban activity, you know, very DIY, very like disaffected youth of the 80s feel. Yeah. And what I think is kind of interesting is that I mentioned the survival or the persistence of the Thrasher brand because this shows that the attitude and the vibe associated with skating seems to have a longer longevity than the activity itself. Yeah, just like disaffected youth, suburban youth. Um, I don't know where it is, but since the 70s on, that kind of attitude just sort of persists. And I mean, I get it. Like, I, I've lived in the suburbs as a teenager. I get it. But yeah, I'm just going to read a couple of uh, quotes here from like uh, some musicians talking about Thrasher and just like the scene. So this one's from a guy named Brandon Cruz from a band called Dr. No. We were all skaters before we were punkers. We surfed year-round and skated in empty pools when it didn't rain. In 75 or 76, this was before punk rock, they built a skate park in Oxnard and all the guys from Venice would come up and skate there. We all skated and we all skated heavy metal and southern fried rock back then. Also, actually, Oxnard is actually like, that's not that close to Venice. Like, that's like a, that's a, a real drive. So that's pretty interesting that these guys would drive like, two hours just to get to a skate park obviously it's a great place to skate but it's also a great place to meet other skaters and uh for these punk musician guys probably meet another skater punk band there it is uh like a communal space so it makes sense that it would be uh, a gathering ground for various people from the scene like even hours away um yeah and here's like another quote from a guy named brian brannon from the band jody foster's army Thrasher was a really big catalyst in helping everybody join together. With it, you can find out what town has what band, so you can hook up, go tour, go to their spots, skate, and hang out. Yeah, you can just read Thrasher, figure out like who is where, and just drive over to their skate park. Hopefully, meet them there, like jam together, skate together, just hang out. Yeah, you know, we mentioned uh, gang violence in the bike biker scene. Uh, unfortunately, there's a uh, gang violence in uh, the skater scene at this time too. Unfortunately, there was a, lo a lot of violence in the punk scene generally, hardcore metal scenes, hardcore scenes. You know, th th this might seem th this might seem kind of funny to mention, but another antecedent of skateboard, you know, violence is that there's a long history of surfer gangs that intimidate other surfers who want to, you know, take their territory and get the best waves at a certain beach. Like these gangs were sort of like that, you know, they would intimidate people to get off their like skate park or just like, I don't know, the back of the library that they skate in, right? But for the most part, it feels more like um, associated with the music than skating. You know, they were more like LA punk gangs rather than LA skate gangs. And they would mostly make trouble at um, shows, not at skate parks. But yeah, so that's a sound. 
you know, skate, listen aggressive rock music. And now the look and the vibe. So how would you describe the look of skaters? Oof, okay. So like uh, alternating between each decade, alternating between baggy or tight clothes, always like maybe either also alternating between long hair or being sh- being bald. Uh, definitely probably uh, might shower a little bit less than your, your average guy, but, but not like not like to a disgusting degree. And always a major emphasis on brand of shoes. Oh, definitely. You know, in the 70s, they were wearing, you know, much tighter t-shirts and jeans. But, you know, the 80s, 90s, uh, was much more loose fitting because, you know, like you need that movement while you're skating. And, you know, like by the 70s, um, I mean, basically every, every adult male was wearing t-shirts and jeans by default. Female skaters too, right? So it was partially just like what everybody wore, but also partially like sort of practical to the activity. You mentioned the shoes, yeah. Vans got their start in the 60s, DC shoes in the 90s. Um, Also the 90s, like Nike, Adidas, Converse were making skate shoes. Surfer brands became skater brands, basically, like Quicksilver and Billabong, which were like always just exclusively surfer companies. You know, a lot of skaters just like bought their stuff because there was, at this point, there wasn't as strong a connection between surfers and skaters as there was originally. But the clothing looked cool, so they kind of wore the same stuff. But yeah, like, eventually the skater aesthetic just becomes the aesthetic, the default cool thing you wear. So, like, a lot of kids in the 90s, even if they weren't skaters, they ended up dressing like skater. Just like, you know, this is what clothes are cool right now, so this is how we all dress. But yeah, okay, so that's the look. What's the vibe? How would you describe the vibe? Definitely, uh, I guess the best word is disaffected. Being dissatisfied and disillusioned with the way things are going... And unlike the previous Youth Rebellion of the 60s and 70s, I feel like the 80s, 90s revolt was very apolitical. And it was sort of against the idea of any kind of organized ideology or even organized expression of dissatisfaction. It was just like, you know, being angry to express your anger. Yeah, it was just like, just like, fuck that. I'm just vibing. Yeah, it does feel like a very specific Gen X cool I mean, I, I guess there are skaters these days who still kind of give off that same vibe, but generally speaking, that was like the vibe of the era, and it's mostly gone away now. Anyway, so the 80s is when skating and skate punk is a subculture, right? But by the 90s, it just becomes the culture. And no better example of this than the Vans Warp Tour that starts in 1996. Warp Tour is punk and ska and cool people and skaters. It's all about passion on here, you know. It's like everybody's passionate about what they're doing, and the skaters go and they watch the bands get off on what they do. Bands come over and they watch the skaters come get off on what they do. There's no boundaries. There's no backstage. It's just everybody hanging out and watching each other, having fun. There's a lot of bands on this tour that I really like, and I don't like. I didn't know that they were into skateboarding. So it's like I look up to them, but then on the other hand, they look up to me with my skateboarding. Bike riding music is is exactly the same to me because. It's, I look at it as a total relief. Which is why it's so cool to be on the work tour because it's the same for me. Someone made this tour about my life. What it is, is a concert with several bands that tours the country. And originally it was just uh, like a punk, ska-like concert, but eventually like branches out to like includes basically all kinds of music. 
But Vans was the main sponsor, and because they were the sponsor, the concert also toured with professional skaters and a small skating area with like ramps, high pipe, that sort of thing. And yeah, they brought you know skaters, rollerbladers, and BMXers just like on tour with them. And so yeah, you could go to the Warp Tour, listen to some music, watch some skaters and BMXers perform some sick stunts, buy some Vans apparel, and just generally have a good time. Yeah, and so for what like twenty plus years. It was the premier kind of, you know, skate culture and contemporary punk culture event. Yeah, it was also unique in that it was um, a concert with multiple artists that traveled. You know, like these days we have Coachella, which has multiple artists, but it's like very specific to Coachella in California. Obviously bands tour, you know, there might like be one or two bands on the headliner, but like a concert with 10, 15 bands that tours was very unique and uh, Warp Tour basically ended. Uh, this last year was 2019. Uh, originally, they said they weren't going to do one 2020 because of COVID, but I think Warp Tour is just basically done forever now. Most likely. I mean, it had a great lineup, especially in the early years. Like, Actually, some of those bands got their start at um, Warp Tour, like Blink-182, Limp Bizkit, My Chemical Romance, Full Out Boy, Paramore. They got their like big breaks in Warp Tour. Even Katy Perry got her big break in the Warp Tour. Oh, really? I had no idea. That's funny. She performed well after it was a, a skate punk exclusive tour, but, you know. Yeah, it's cool. I didn't realize. Yeah, like I said, it was the culture by the 90s. If you're just a teenager and you wanted to look cool, you would probably dress like a skater. If you wanted to, like, listen to cool music, you'd probably listen to, like, skate punk, ska, like, that sort of type of music. You know, obviously, like, hip-hop is a big deal in the 90s as well, but I guess if you're a white person listening to white people music, you'll listen to, like, that, like, skater music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we should mention that even though um, there, there definitely was this association with black culture in the 70s, by the 90s, that seems to have mostly gone away, unfortunately. And it really had basically become just, I shouldn't say just a movement for white kids, because there's always been a lot of skaters of color, but it definitely was associated with like the white suburban experience for whatever reason by that time. Yeah, I feel it was just the fact that it was like very suburban and very middle class. It doesn't necessarily need to be middle class. Like a good board is under a hundred bucks. You don't even need a good board. You can just like buy a cheaper one or just like buy one from garage sale or something and you can have a good time. But yeah, it really just ended up being uh, like a, a middle class white American thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what happened to skating? Like I said, it was like a you know, went from like an activity to subculture to culture status. So what do you think happened? Is it just another boom and bust thing? Are we just in another bust cycle? Or do you think skateboarding is permanently gone for now? It might be cyclical, but I think there are also two words which spelled the demise of most real life subcultures, and that's video games. I feel like it might be a combination of things that skating just comes in fads and then you know, the fad was over by 2010, but I feel like it might not come back because of video games. And my pet theory for this is that, you know, these extreme sports, you know, like doing six stunts on a skateboard or even just like all those other things, you know, like skiing, snowboarding, whatever, like all of those things are also on the decline. Those were considered enjoyable because of the adrenaline rush that they provide, but it's not actually the adrenaline that like makes it feel good to do those things. It's the dopamine. And it turns out that video games are also a great source of dopamine and also a much more practical source of dopamine. So just if you want that like rush, um, video games are much easier, much more practical way to get that rush. And I think that's what's preventing teenagers from getting into this stuff in the first place. 
Yeah, and just speaking anecdotally, um, when I was in high school, basically everyone played video games, but uh, or really middle school mostly, everyone played video games, but there was definitely a group of guys who were skaters, and they were a big portion of my middle school. Maybe like, I don't know, 20% of the school were skaters. And they all played Xbox, but they really made their whole thing just being skating. And if your whole thing was only video games, you were probably seen as kind of a nerd. But the impression that I get is that now, like, you know, 10 plus years later, that's not the vibe at all. And that if your whole thing is just playing video games, you're not a nerd, you're just a normal teenager. And that if your your whole thing being skating is probably a lot less common now than it was when I was in middle school or high school. Yeah, I think it's the communal aspect because, you know, probably those skater kids that were playing Xbox that, you know, they're probably playing um, like together in person mostly. They weren't necessarily playing at home online with their friends. Whereas now I feel like most video games are just, you know, you are playing with your friends, but you're playing online at each of your houses. Like skating is a communal activity, you know, obviously you can skate alone, but it was a thing you mostly did with your friends. And now if you can do video games with your friends, you know, it's more socially acceptable and it's like much more practical. Like you can play with the games with your friends without leaving your home. You know, it might be a thing where like this is good enough and you don't ever explore like more physical communal activities like skating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, COVID is only accelerating this with, you know, a, a year spent in, in the house. I think that a lot of kids probably have a, a permanent orientation toward online experiences because of that. You know, a lot of people had high hopes that oh, once COVID is over, people are going to like go all in on, you know, in-person physical activities because they've been cooped up for so long. And the flip side is uh, maybe they just become so accustomed to like staying indoors that they never really give a shit about leaving their house again. I don't know. I think both are likely, honestly. But I would hope if it's just, you know, we're in a, a bus cycle and there's going to be a skater boom by the end of the decade again. It's certainly possible. Like, I, I live in LA, so I, I, which is kind of still like a, a skating hub. And I do see kids skating a lot, but it's definitely not like a thing that like every teen does. It's like uh, it's probably a much smaller subset of the population than it was when I was in high school, and definitely a much smaller subset of the population than in the heyday back in the 80s and 90s. You know, I guess it was just sort of seen as a fad that was very tied to a particular aesthetic and a particular kind of music. And once that kind of aesthetic and music fades away, you know, skating as an activity faded away with it. So I think what needs to happen for skating to come back is to just either latch yourself on to a different kind of aesthetic or just sort of transcend that old look and just become a completely new culture on itself. I don't know. I mean, those are my thoughts. If you have thoughts, uh, tweet them at Liam. Don't tweet at me. I, I never read my mentions, but uh, yeah, if you have thoughts on this episode <laughs> yeah. or uh, skating or... Toss them my way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, toss no. them at Liam or toss them at the uh, Gladio for Europe Twitter account. Yeah. And I got to admit, uh, I'm not a skater. So, and you can probably tell from this episode, if I got anything wrong, definitely shoot me out about it. Uh, I'm here for it. Oh yeah, we love your negative feedback. I guess that does it for this week's episode of Gladio for Europe. I'm Abram. I was joined by Liam. And, uh... Surf's up. Talk to you soon.